There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way This is Rod Adams, and it's time for another Atomic Show. My guest today is Len Rodberg, who is a retired professor uh, from Queens College, New York. Go ahead. How are you doing, Len? I'm fine. I'm doing fine. I'm very happy to be with you and to be able to talk about what we're doing here in New York uh, around nuclear related issues. Yeah, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, how you came to be a fan of nuclear energy, and what you're doing to try to make it uh, more acceptable and more used in New York. Okay, uh, this will be a little long because I've got a long history. I began, <laughs> as, as you'll see, I began uh, uh, adult life, let's say, with a PhD in theoretical nuclear physics from MIT. Uh, got it in 1956. Uh, I'm 90 years old. Um, uh, but I, so I did nuclear physics theoretical research for just about four years. And when John Kennedy was elected, he, uh, he committed himself to creating an arms control and disarmament agency. And I got the opportunity to join it early in 1961 as the first scientist in that agency. And I stayed five years. I ran their science policy office. Um, and that I've never, in a way, I've never looked back. I've done public policy around uh, analysis, around technological issues uh, the re- for the rest of my career. Um, for 10 years, I was at the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, um, which was a progressive think tank. And in 19, and uh, I was present on uh, the first Earth Day in 1970, and much of it took place in Washington. Um, uh, I met Dennis Hayes there and so on. And in in 73, we had... I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Uh, Sure. Dennis Hayes, that sounds familiar. Wasn't he a one of the, the creators of Earth Day, a senator yes, from... He was, no, he was a young... He was in his 20s. Uh, I don't think he's ever been uh, served elective office. He's been the head of foundations. He's still involved. Uh, at least it was a year or two that I saw. Yes, he was the creator of Earth Day in 1970. And I was very interested. It's, you know, it's my... I take my field as uh, the application of technology to solve social problems. And I, uh, uh, I taught that instead of physics, when I went back to the university after my time in the disarmament, I taught the social impact of science and technology. Anyway, in 73, we had the, the energy crisis, you know, the, perhaps uh, the, the uh, slowdown in the delivery of oil from, from OPEC, and the rise in energy prices. And Solar and renewables overall became very popular. I wrote in the 70s, I wrote a book on uh, what state and states particularly were doing about subsidizing and encouraging energy conservation and renewable energy. I wrote a 
study for the Congress on the employment benefit. It was called the study. It's called the employment impact of the solar transition on the employment benefits of solar and solar and wind. Um, uh, Robert Pollan re- reproduced that study 30 years later for Barack Obama. It came with the same result, 2 million jobs a year. Um, anyway, I was a solar and wind enthusiast. I, I eventually went up, went to Queens College at City University of New York, uh, chaired the Urban Studies Department. I taught climate change as one of the policy issues. I taught from starting in uh, around 2007 until I retired in 2017. And I told my students that the solution to uh, solar and wind was solar and wind. I liked the uh, technology. And I mean, looking back, I never looked at the system level issues to see what the problems were until I watched a talk by Michael Schellenberger that he gave in, I think it's COP23 in Berlin in about 2017, 2018, uh, in which he showed why solar and wind couldn't do it. And so I most recent talk I gave, which led you, Rod, to discover the, the work I was doing, I gave a talk to my faculty retirees called The 2020s Are Not the 1970s. And the, the point is that what we're asking renewables to do today is very different from what we were asking it to do back in the 70s when it was just a supplement to existing sources to try to reduce the costs and keep basically keep the cost of energy under some kind of control but you know we would put a solar panel on our roof but we were still connected to the grid now we're trying to make solar be the grid and that's impossible it can't work and I discovered that first with Schellenberger, and then I took a relook at nuclear, which until that point, I had been somewhat suspect of it. I lived through the TMI episode, uh, which is near, you know, a few, about 100 miles from where I live, and uh, uh, just never looked seriously at it until uh, five years ago. And uh, the result was, I looked and said, my God, I have been totally wrong. Nuclear is safe. Um, radiation is not the, the thing to be feared that we thought it was in the period when I was working on stopping nuclear fallout by working on the nuclear test ban treaty, which is what I did when, during my time in the government. Um, and so I'm now a nuclear advocate. Um, I'm, I helped to create an organization, still very small, but pretty noisy, called Nuclear New York. Um, uh, I can talk more about that when uh, basically we, we, create, we're, we created ourselves about five years ago around the impending closure of the Indian Point nuclear plant, um, which then Governor Andrew Cuomo had committed to close. It's uh, It was a two gigawatt, uh, perfectly operating um, two-unit facility in uh, Westchester County, which is a upscale community with a lot of uh, environmental anti-nuclear advocates. Uh, Cuomo lived nearby and uh, 
committed himself a while ago to closing that plant at the same time that the state is subsidizing uh, three plants up on the up in the on the edge of upstate New York on the on Lake Ontario, they get what are called ZEX zero emission credits, um, which they need to compete with low cost gas. But the uh, Indian Point plant didn't get them, and uh, Cuomo shut it down. They the two units shut down uh, last in twenty. 2020 and 2021, um, he promised that they would be replaced with uh, renewables with, you know, zero emission sources. It was a lie. Uh, I assume he <laughs> knew it was, it was a lie. And we, we now, you know, every, every few months, we put out the data showing that we are now burning more fossil fuels than we have in a decade with the shutdown of that plant. I mean, I should add one thing about that. The, Unit three, which was the last one to close, before it closed, at the point it closed, it set a world record for continuous operation of a pressurized water plant. It ran for two years, a little more than two years without, without stopping. Um, and it's a beautiful plant. We're actually going to tour it. I've never been in it, but we're going to take a tour of it uh, next week because they're, they're decommissioning and tearing it down. It's a, it's a crime. Um, yeah, isn't, so, it, isn't it a shame that one of the very few uh, things that uh, politicians have actually promised and delivered on <laughs> is a, an effort to close nuclear plants? Of course, yeah. they don't really deliver on the, the linked promise of replacing the right. power output from the nuclear plant with clean sources. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah. they certainly have <laughs> had a history of following through on their promises to shut can, it down. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame. I mean, this, this is a sister plant to Diablo Canyon. I mean, it's an identical plant. And, uh, well, Diablo, you know, well, you know, you, I'm sure, have had set, you've probably had episodes about Diablo. But uh, at the moment, it's saved for a few years. Um, but it's a nice, beautiful plant that operates and will keep, can keep operating for decades. Uh, yeah, it it's a uh, I'm I'm reluctant to call it saved yet, uh, right. but it looks like it's going to be saved. Uh, there's still some tenuous uh, aspects to that yeah, decision. Doesn't have a license yet. Uh, <laughs> extension, an extension, but we're certainly expecting it. It's all political, but the politics of nuclear is changing. Um, and it's changing because people are slowly recognizing that this solar and wind is a fantasy, but fantasies seem to die slowly. We're living. Th- I want to. I want to talk a little later about this, but the hi- we're living through this hydrogen fantasy right now too. <laughs> and uh, well, yeah, I, I will talk about that in a minute. But I do. I do want to touch back on, you know, the original uh, idea of using wind and solar as fuel saving devices came very strongly from your uh your commentary about your 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 path yeah that was i'm the the 1970s i'm not quite as old as you are but the 1970s were an influential part of my uh career path my upbringing sure loss of access to oil Right. Or a sufficient oil back in the 70s was a major reason why I thought that studying nuclear energy 
would be a good thing. But as you say, the, the wind and sun work, and they work well to reduce the amount of fuel that we burn to supply a particular amount of electricity. But right. they only contribute whenever they feel like it. Right. And right. It's, it's not something that can be a basis for a dependable grid. Right. Right. And, and I think that's the real uh, challenge. Now, you also indicated that you're a pretty strong history in the progressive side of yep. the political spectrum. Yep. Yep. I work. Uh, the, the other area I work on is uh, healthcare reform. National, what used to be called national health insurance is now called Medicare for all. And I've, I was part of the anti-war movement in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I'm, the Institute for Policy Studies is a left liberal think tank that I helped found and operate for 10 years. So, yes, I'm on the left side of the spectrum, but trying to be it's, – it's a little disconcerting because in New York, here in New York, our allies are Republicans. Um, and uh, But they don't have any political power in this state right now. The Democrats of New York State are uh, aligned with the, the renewable anti-nuclear uh, uh, side of the debate. Um, I, I don't know whether you want me to t- talk, yeah. talk about the New York situation now and the law that we- was passed. Yeah, we will in just a minute. I, I do yeah, want sure. to touch on this idea that there are good reasons why people who have always been progressive and always thought about things like universal health care, good wages, good family jobs, uh, the power of labor unions, uh, many other aspects of public education, many other aspects of what me- it means to be liberal, right. why they should once they've run the numbers like you have, start thinking about how much nuclear energy can benefit, can align with all the things they've always held dear to them. They don't have to change their very being to become pro-nuclear. Because well, nuclear... Go on. I'm sorry. Go, go on. No, what? Just go ahead. God. I'm thinking yeah, okay. nuclear's got a lot of reasons to be attractive to both sides of the political spectrum, if you look at it holistically, well, it's you have to look at it a little bit historically. the The old left was, by which I guess I mean communist and the socialists in the '30s, um, believed in central planning and uh, as the vehicle for ensuring equality and that that you know everyone would have access to a decent standard of life. The new left that grew up in the 60s and 70s was more community oriented. You know, the the leaders of it became community organizers. I mean, Obama is a, you know, a a child of that in a sense. Mm -hmm. And, And so they have an antipathy to the kind of large scale industry and power source that nuclear represents. So. Um, and that and the com- and the, the anti-war movement, the anti-nuclear movement, anti-nuclear war movement have all led progressives to be um, pro, you know, they, they view um, 
And I, I've been part of it because it fit with the ideology that I supported for a while. They, I, I, I put out a, a paper, a report back in 1980 on community, community caring, and care stood for uh, 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 basically renewable energy and conservation and renewable energy, community caring, um, and. The idea is that solar and wind and energy conservation can be can be done at the community level. It's been it's associated with democracy, with local control. That whole the whole local control movement around schools in the '60s and '70s was around capturing control back in the community from large institutions. And nuclear is identified with large institution. It may be that. The coming of small modulars will will help change that, but that's one of the reasons why the left has been almost uniformly anti-nuclear because they see it as you know the left sees it as sort of big big industry uh, and uh, as distinguished from uh, uh, you know a participatory democracy. I'm always interested to find out more about how people have almost instinctively been anti-nuclear or how it has been a member, being a member of a particular group or particular philosophy lends them towards being anti-nuclear. Yeah. So I appreciate that. I do have one more question on those lines and then we're gonna talk more about your activities in New York. You mentioned that you lived through Three Mile Island. Right. And by that, I always wonder what people mean because Three Mile Island did not cause any significant harm ever. And I mean, it was never any uh, discussion of it resulting in, you know, massive injuries, deaths, right. property destruction, anything like that. That's absolutely right. But that's not the way the media saw it. And, the, you know, and there was a lot of confusion. Um, the me the press didn't know what to make of it. They got confused stories, um, and the real truth has never been been absorbed by the culture um, of any of the three. You know, we talk about the three big um, nuclear accidents, and you know, we still get movies like the Chernobyl one that revive all the fears. And then, of course, there was that uh, uh, the movie with Jane Fonda that came out at the same time as the Three Mile Island episode. Uh, uh, you know, I can't. At the moment, I don't can't think of the name of the movie, but it's called the yeah. China Syndrome. China, yeah, the the uh, right, 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 and uh, so all people know is what they heard in the media, and they didn't they didn't read the report. Then it, when they finally came out the presidential commission saying there was no, no, in fact, no damage, no deaths, no, in, no health benefit, health impacts at all. There are still people I hear from when I talk who think that their cousin got cancer, who lives someplace near Harrisburg, got cancer. And it was a result of three mile Island, which is ridiculous, but that's, uh, it, you know, people aren't numerate. But like you, you pointed out, even someone as numerate as you didn't really think about uh, uh, 
That's right. The numbers involved in something like Through My Island. Yeah. Because it just was never pointed out to you. You didn't yeah. until you listened to somebody say, hey, this, let's yeah. take a real hard look at this. Yeah. Thing. Until I took a look at it. I mean, what I told my students was that nuclear is too, too, too much power to be controlled by ordinary fallible mortals. I didn't understand the inherent safety of a of a uh, water cooled, uh, uh, you know, slow neutron uh, uh, reactor. And yeah. It's it's inherent safety. Uh, it's amazing. I, um, yeah, now, you know, it's... it was my field, but, the, <laughs> but I never looked at well, it. One might also take a look at uh, renewables and say. Uh, they're just not powerful enough to power the society that humans have created. Right, 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 right. Well, I have to, when I give talks on this or write about it, I have to explain the word dispatchable and explain that solar and wind are weather dependent. They produce power when the weather is favorable, but they don't produce power when it's actually needed. And you need a source that's dispatchable that will produce power when when it's called for. Yeah, I like to use on-demand because yep. uh, yep. I think that, that that's a, fr- a, a little term that people hear more often than dispatchable. Yeah, uh, That's just that sometimes. And I also once writ- wrote about the fact that people may uh, attribute the term intermittent to something that is controllably intermittent. Yep. Like the intermittent setting of your windshield wipers, you can pick <laughs> what speed it, it, it controls at. Uh-huh. So that's that's actually kind of a nice thing if it's yeah. only there when you want it to be there. But that's not right. what intermittent means with the weather. Right, right, right. I, right. I sometimes get amazed by people who tell me that they want us to be totally powered by the wind and the sun. And I simply ask, have you ever spent any time outside have you ever gone camping and thought about, you know, using just the wind and the sun that's available to power yourself? Because it's not there. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know, I was once on a, a city street in Washington, D.C. It was October. And you, you're from the mid-Atlantic, so you know what October days can mm-hmm. be like. Mm-hmm. It was very intensely overcast, not mm-hmm. a breeze anywhere, and about... Mm-hmm. maybe 40, 45 degrees. So mm-hmm. I was chilly. Mm-hmm. I was damp. And I really wanted some warmth. <laughs> and the sun and the wind weren't there to help me. They, well, they weren't. No, no, no. But no. I was talking with a Greenpeace person who told me, well, the wind and the sun is all we need. I looked around and she said, yeah. really? <laughs> well, that's the official of position of New York State at this point. So, Yeah, uh, and... Then they say, well, trans- we can always move it from a place where it is to where it isn't. And I say, <laughs> how much transmission do you want through your neighborhood? <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, uh, look, Mark Jacobson in your neighborhood is, I assume you're <laughs> someplace around there, uh, is still peddling, uh, and people believe it, peddling that, uh, you know, the east side will, the east coast will power the west coast. Except when they're both in, when it's nighttime in both, it's not going to happen. Yeah, there's only three hours difference between the two yeah. coasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I can't have to tell you, I, my my business information is a little deceptive. I work 
for a company that's home port that's home based in Menlo Park, but I actually live in Tampa, Florida. Oh, so oh, okay. I'm an East Coast guy. Len, tell us about what you and your comrades at Nuclear New York are doing, and and tell us a little about the noise you're making. Because okay, as Martha sure. Mead once said, uh, never underestimate the power of a small group of people to make a difference in the world. They're pretty much the only thing that it has. Yep, I I like that, uh, and we're certainly trying. I say we kind of got our start with the Indian Point closure period. Um, we made a lot of noise, but it's not clear that anybody heard us. Um, we published uh, a number of op-eds in the uh, Daily News, which but the New York Times didn't notice the closure until a week before they ran one story on it. Uh, I mean, this is 25% of the electricity powering the downstate New York region. That's New York City and the surrounding counties, about, about eight, eight to 10 million people. It was providing 25% of the power and the New York Times didn't deign to cover it until it, it was too late. The Daily News did, but it doesn't get the kind of power audience that the Times did. We put out press releases. We had a, when it closed, we had a, uh, a kind of a funeral at the uh, a celebration. We we styled it as a uh, and along with uh, uh, the people from uh, Green the Green New Deal, um, you know Maddie Hilly and others uh, mm -hmm. to celebrate the workers, the thousand workers who were losing their positions there. Uh, so you had know, a celebration of life, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. With a lot of. Uh, safety helmets as a display of the workers who kept that plant running for 46 years uh, and produced the power that's now supplied by two new gas plants that were built clearly specifically to replace it uh, because the, well, clearly the, I mean, one person went to jail over the bribes that were involved in that. Anyway, that was our start. Um <clears throat> In 20, so those the Indian Point closed the first unit in 2020 and the second unit in 2021. In 2019, uh, the state passed its what they referred to as the landmark climate law. It's probably, uh, in terms of states, the broadest climate law that any state has passed, but it's quite misguided. Uh, there was no, their deadline set up. Uh, I'll give you the three key ones. By 2030, 70% uh, of our electricity is supposed to come from renewable sources. Uh, renewable does not include nuclear. Uh, by 2040, uh, all the electricity is supposed to come from clean sources. So that does allow nuclear, but, but that says that the electricity sector is to be have no uh, no emissions by 2040, and by 2050 the state is to be uh, uh, no net uh, uh, emissions of any kind of any you know greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. So electrification of buildings and of transportation and of industry 
was supposed to be completed by 2050. Um, uh, a colleague of mine who was who used to work for the NRC and for the IAEA and I published a, an op-ed in the Albany Times Union in uh, September, a month after the law passed, saying that the uh, 2030 goal, 70% renewable, is fantasy and won't happen, can't happen. System wouldn't work if it were to be tried. Uh, the current, let me explain that just briefly. The current situation in New York is that 26% of our electricity is renewable, uh, meaning water, wind, and solar. 21% of that is, so, is water power from the Niagara River and the St. Lawrence River. Um, and 5% is solar and, and wind. And mm -hmm. to get from the, we, we're not going to get any more water power of any significant quantity. So that means that solar and wind have to go from 5% to 50% of our electricity in the remaining seven years of this decade. <laughs> the, the state officials are still acting as if that's going to happen. I mean, it's clearly ridiculous. Uh, uh, I mean, we're growing. They're adding about one gigawatt a year. We, that would be about uh, 30, 30 about, I think close to 40 gigawatts of solar and wind. They're adding about one a year. We haven't added any wind in the last four years. So. Um, Anyway, it's a ridiculous uh, goal, but they're still acting as if that was the is it's going to happen. Um, so the law <laughs> that's the goals the law set. Uh, it, a, a year by a year later, they set up a climate action council, which was developed to develop the plan to achieve that. There was no plan to achieve that. Those goals were just set by sort of pointing your finger in the wind and, and making guesses. So they set up this council. Uh, most of the council is uh, solar and wind advocates, not engineers or scientists. Only, there are only three people on it who have technical capacities, technical backgrounds. One represents the gas industry. One represents or is the executive director of what's called the independent power producers which is all the power plants, including nuclear plants. And the Mostly third is, gas. And, and, and gas, yeah, of course, and gas. Um, and um, and uh, the, third, the, 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 uh, the third one's an engineer. So they, they all voted no against the plan. The, the plan that came out, the plan was released the end of, uh, the plan they came up with, it's called a scoping plan, came up, with uh, uh, the end of December, they issued their plan, which um, we have a, the state has NYSERDA, New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. They, mm -hmm. um, uh, they, they developed the, the quantitative aspects of the plan for the council. Um, they did this, by the way, by contracting with E3, which is a consulting firm in San Francisco that does system analyses of projected uh, state power systems. They did one for the Northwest, for Washington and Oregon, which featured 
uh, in addition to the existing one major nuclear plant there, uh, one or two additional ones. Uh, the plan they did for New York had no mention of nuclear at all. In other words, well, and NYSERDA, the only thing that NYSERDA has done nuclear, uh, with an exception I'll tell you about in a minute, is they are overseeing the dismantlement of the reprocessing plant that was in um, West Valley, New York, upstate New mm -hmm. York, but which had some technical leakage problems and was shut down and is being decommissioned. So they're, they're in the business you were talking about earlier of taking nuclear apart rather than build nuclear up. Um, yeah. And so they came up with a plan which has no nuclear um, I mean, the, the, I mean, I've got this quote from the plan which says, "Wind, water, and sunlight will power most of New York's economy in 2050." So Sounds that's like it was written by yeah. Mark Jacobson. Yep, yep, yep. Well, one of his co-authors is uh, uh, Robert Hayworth, Howarth, who is a professor of uh, ecology Cornell. at Cornell, um, and writes about methane and. Uh, methane leakage. I mean, he did some good work on methane, but he won't consider nuclear. I mean, we've tried talking with him about it. Um, I've, you know, the every meeting of the Climate Action Council has been uh, public by Zoom. And I and my colleagues in Nuclear New York, which is a nonprofit advocacy group, um, have attended those meetings via Zoom, and we listened for the word nuclear. And until the last meeting in November of 2022, never heard the word. I refer to it as the local N-word. Um, mm -hmm. You can't say the word nuclear uh, and, uh, in energy circles in the New York State's official settings. Um, at the yeah, last I call setting, it the other, yeah. I call it the other N-word. The other N-word. Okay, good, good. Um, at the last meeting, NYSERDA came in. We, we of course, have submitting comments to them about how you need nuclear, how solar won't, and wind won't work, how you'll destroy upstate New York's farmland by uh, putting in, up in their plan 60 gigawatts of solar. Um, uh, and how nuclear, a small number of nuclear plants can do the job. I mean, 20 nuclear plants can power New York State. Uh, but um, they ignored us. Uh, but at the last meeting, NYSERDA came in with a, with a description of what would happen if they put in four gigawatts of SMRs, of small modular reactors. And it was quite interesting. And showed that somebody there had done some sophisticated examination of the, the, what's happening in the nuclear industry. Uh, mm -hmm. But none of that is reflected in the final report except for one sentence um, in the, in the, in the uh, executive summary. And uh, let me read it to you. Uh, it basically says the, the goal of 100% Emission-free electricity by 2040 requires between 15 and 45 gigawatts of electricity from zero-emission dispatchable resources to meet demand and maintain reliability. 
this will require either storage or nuclear power. Um, if you look at the details in the plan and the appendices where there are the numbers, uh, this zero emission resource, unspecified, except that it could be storage or nuclear power, would provide just 2% of total electricity. And but it's as large as this, the amount of re fossil fuel resources now in New York State. That is, 40, that we now have about 26 uh, gigawatts of uh, gas generation in the state. Mm -hmm. And so this is saying that um, this plan, which supposedly, in which supposedly solar, wind, and water are going to uh, provide our power, in fact, needs even more electricity from a, some unspecified dispatchable source uh, than we're, we now have from gas. And this is to be established to, pay, to provide just 2% of the power. How that's financed is not specified. Nothing is specified in it. The, their analysis uses hydrogen, but uh, they have, have 20, half the hydrogen coming from out of state someplace because mm -hmm. it requires the hydrogen has to of course be produced by even more solar and wind if it's going to be clean um, nobody among the supporters points to this and says wait a minute what's going to provide that where's the money where wh who's who's studying <laughs> it who's developing it we're talking 17 years from now having recreated uh the whole power system of New York State with a new source that's clean. Um, we could do it if we got started now with nuclear, but they aren't doing anything about it. They're talking about, uh, uh, I mean, the, le the left the, the, that we were talking about earlier, the left in New York State is pushing uh, legislation that would take the New York Power Authority, which now runs the dams along the, the rivers, the big, the large mm -hmm. Niagara dams, and which ran one of the Indian Point plants, which built one of the Indian Point plants, would convert that into a, an agency whose only role could be developing solar and wind, installing solar and wind, on the argument that the private sector isn't moving fast enough. And in fact, we, uh, we're, we're facing, we face really a... Uh, transmission blockage as well as a reality blockage that is mm -hmm. the, the people who run the grid in new york state we have a we have a uh, unlike where you are in florida we have a we don't have a regulated system we have a deregulated so-called deregulated iso system and the differently the, uh, regulated dif differently regulated yes uh it um uh, it finds that there are that because of the distributed nature of solar and wind, that there are what they call pockets. That is, the power can be produced, but it can't get out uh, with given the current plans for transmission of power. Um, we have a, we have a, they have a plan. The core of their plan for us here in New York City is, is offshore wind, 17 gigawatts of offshore. There's no offshore wind right now off of New York, uh, but they're planning 17 gigawatts of it. Um, and, and nobody, I mean, I published in the, in the Daily News an op-ed 
uh, I don't know, a year and a half ago. I've gotten no response that I can see visibly pointing out that storms come right through where those where those uh, uh, turbines will be. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how big the storm is, they will shut down when there's a storm because that's the only way they can protect the fans is to shut down. So New York and the whole downstate region will go black every time a storm comes through. And if it's a big storm, it'll tear those turbine fans off. They're, yep. they're, they're rated for Category 3. I mean, Category 5 came through Puerto Rico a few years ago and just tore the, the wind turbines to shreds. And, uh, I mean, who thinks of putting uh, – and the, and the thing is we – the downstate region is kind of isolated from the upstate region. There isn't enough transmission to get all the solar and wind that's going to be built upstate, downstate. It can go across, so it'll that wind and solar will produce electricity if it's ever built to, for New England on the east side and on Ohio and Pennsylvania on the west side. But there's not enough space cabling to bring it down to New York, and uh, people with with their country homes in the middle between the two won't let those power lines come through. New power lines come through, <laughs> so you know it's, we call it the tale of two grids. Uh, so you got an upstate grid, which is clean today. It's mostly nuclear and, and uh, water power. And right. this, the downstate grid is all gas now that we've shut our nuclear plant. So they want to turn us on. You know, literally, the plan is to power this, the southern part of, the, of New York State by offshore wind, which uh, uh, we won't have. Which doesn't exist. doesn't exist. And if it did... It would only exist until the first storm came through, and then it would be kaput, uh, and we would be, we would go down with it. Um, it's madness, but uh, you know, people, people, you have the the solar and wind religion is is rampant here. So we we've been testifying. We put out an alternate plan, uh, a, a very nice report. It's about a thirty-page report called the, a bright future uh joshua goldstein who i'll bet you've mm-hmm. had on your uh oh yeah on, on your, joshua on your, yeah uh did a foreword for us because you used his title uh bright future and we got the a coalition of labor unions a clean jobs coalition to uh co-sponsor it mm-hmm. as well as the campaign for green new deal you know it was based in chicago i think uh, right. to, to co-sponsor it because um, they understand that they're, they're good union, solid union jobs in, uh, in the nuclear industry. And uh, uh, the plan was very simple. It just said, let's have half the power come from nuclear. Uh, we didn't do a very uh, extensive analysis of it, but we did enough to, to show that you could spend far less if you use nuclear than, and be far less environmentally destructive. One of the interesting things legally, I think, is that because solar and wind are installed by private corporations, you don't, even though the state is subsidizing them, it doesn't have to do an environmental impact statement that it would have to do if it were a state project. <clears throat> and so there's no environmental impact analysis of what 
this plan which would blanket upstate New York, which is this beautiful farmland uh, mm -hmm. countryside with, you know, with solar and wind installations. There's no environmental impact analysis being done, done of it. And there's no, serious, no usable cost analysis. Um, the, uh, the cost analysis they did compared the cost. First of all, it, did, it provided costs in a, in a totally unusable, opaque form called, you know, net, uh, uh, net present value of the expenditures over the next 30 years. And it compared that to the uh, presumed cost of climate change. The, mm -hmm. of the climate change that would happen if we didn't do this. Um, and so, so we can do it all for free, right? Could basically do it all for free, right. Right, it, net, the net, the net savings, but they don't compare it with what we're now spending and they don't give it in real terms that people can understand. What's it gonna do to my, my energy bill? Uh, you know, uh, I actually am working on, with a model that was developed by Reiner Kaur in New England, um, which um, is very accessible and does provide you with answers on what it will cost in a, you know, in a cents per kilowatt hour uh, basis of what this, what alternative plans would cost. And we're in the hmm. process now of, of, uh, of running that model, tailoring it to New York state and then running it to, compare a sensible projection with the, uh, the, the, this solar and wind extravaganza that they're planning. Um, so a sensible projection versus an absurd projection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the strongest words that I've seen in the official documents are from the, the, NISO, the ISO, the New York Independent System Operator, which caused the state's plan unprecedented. That is the, the, the expansion of solar and wind in the state. They don't say impossible, unbelievable, uh, you know, <laughs> but they do say unprecedented. Um, so that, so far, that's better than what they've done in the past. Uh, they, 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 I guess they, they get their funding through the state, so they don't criticize. We have a new governor, but so far she hasn't, really taken any handle on this she uh, uh hokel um yeah she, she uh, probably had her own priorities yeah she has her own own uh, own priorities and there's a bail bond issue and various other things uh, so but, one of the things that your your the presentation you provided to your fellow retirees had a very impactful couple of slides it had a picture of a large solar farm, I think it was in, on Long Island. And right. your pre presentation said the plan calls for a hundred or 1700 of these farms right. Right. to be located somewhere right. in the state of New York. Yep, yep. This That's is an a, incredible number. Yeah, yeah, this is, well, this is a 32 megawatt solar farm. It's the only one in the state right now. And uh, they're they're projecting fifty five thousand megawatts, going from thirty two to fifty five thousand, um, and you know you can't put all that on roofs. Uh, uh, it's going to be out on the farmland that what's now farmland, 
and you know, farmers who have trouble uh, with the uh, economy uh, are willing to sell their land or lease their land to solar developers. Uh, but it it's industrial solar. You're transforming farmland, and uh, where you know New York, New York uh, uh, fashions itself as a place for people to take their families on camping vacations and so on. Mm -hmm. Much of upstate New York actually is is the Adirondack State Park, which is huge and lovely. Uh, and you're not going to put solar. I assume they're not going to put solar farms there, but. Uh, the rest of the farmland is is up for grabs, and the governor Cuomo, before he was basically thrown out of office for uh, mistreating the women on his staff, um, got a law passed which allows the state to override local communities. So the left is getting uh, what's the phrase hung on its own petard. I mean, the uh, supposed local democracy represented by solar and wind. Uh, when you come to the real world, the state says local democracy doesn't work. It won't get the solar farms built that need to be built to meet this plan. And so the state can over, the local communities have a year to uh, give their assent or the state will override them and, <laughs> and get it installed. So, so much for democracy. And, you must uh, this, say yes. Otherwise, we're going to take it from you anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... And I don't think people realize it. Some do, particularly some people upstate. But you can have this irony that the big advocates for solar and wind are in New York City, the most vocal, visible, organized. But the the the, the solar and wind facilities that are going to be built under this plan are upstate. They're not in New York City or even near New York City because there's no land there uh, except out on Long Island. And that's... Uh, not a very large area compared to what is needed for the huge extension of solar and wind that they're forecasting. As I say, 20 Indian Point plant equivalent, you know, 20, basically 40 gigawatts of solar would uh, will meet the needs for 2050. Um, 40 gigawatts you know, of nuclear. Yeah, 40 gigawatts, you know, at 90% capacity factor solar has has a 14 percent capacity factor in new york so <laughs> it's like it's like saying you know one day a week it'll, you'll get sun and the rest of the, you won't have any uh i mean i just it, the whole thing is so crazy i just saw some estimates from mark mills who otherwise i mean who has some good things to say and some terrible things to say but uh, about how we got to build up petroleum hydrocarbons but mm -hmm. uh, and I want to say something about that shortly. Um, okay. The the um, uh, it points out that if we had in fact went to the electric vehicles, we'd run out of lithium. There isn't enough lithium uh, to power all the electric vehicles that the world would need if we were in fact to go to electric vehicles. Uh, I mean, just the resource needs. The I mean, I, you know. 140 million solar panels is what the state is planning. I mean, it's just madness. Um, are, you, no, are, are you aware of the work that Robert Bryce has been doing to catalog yep. the number of uh, rural communities who have put yep. into place restrictions on 
yeah. solar and wind installations. Yeah, particularly wind. Yeah, he's got a, a database of it and he's collecting. And it's quite extraordinary. I mean, there, there, there's resistance upstate, um, uh, but they can't get interconnections uh, because the transmission. So it's a, there's chickens and egg here. The, uh, the communities, some of the communities are fighting it. The, uh, the solar developers have uh, put out plans are often quite deceptive of what they actually intend to do, but they're also all waiting in line to get interconnections to a transmission system that is completely inadequate to meet the needs of a plan like this. So there's sort of, you know, there's some kind of lack of reality at multi-levels here. Um, to me, the you biggest... mentioned that. Yeah, go on. You mentioned that, that New York has not installed any wind in the past several right. years. Is that right? Right. Since since 2019, there hasn't been any growth in our wind development in our wind capacity at all. Uh, and yet, you know, it plan the plan is to grow from uh, uh, about 1.8 uh, gigawatts to nearly 10 uh, uh, by 2040. So this is. Uh, uh, it's it's in La La Land. Um, the 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 element that is uh, an element that is neglected is this all assumes, like as every state's every plan does, electrification of everything, and that's uh, that's also unbelievable. That is the estimate the, the NYSERDA and its plans is, you know has costed some of it out. They say. It'll cost thirty thousand dollars per household to uh, put a heat heat pump, you know, to convert from a gas gas fired heat heating system, you know, usually uh, air, you know, an air duct mm -hmm. or steam system, to uh, a heat pump. And uh, I mean, where are families that are living on twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year going to get uh, upstate? You know, going to get. Uh, the money to convert to an all electric system, which is expensive. You have dig dig piping and so on. It's cold upstate too, so it, mm -hmm. you, you have to use ground source uh, heat pumps, um, and the cost is is extraordinary of uh, electrifying everything. I mean, both the electrified transportation, electrifying uh, 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 buildings, uh, apartment buildings, and so on. Uh, with some kind of geothermal or heat pump system. Um, I've, I've been really interested in the potential for using nuclear reactors to produce what I refer to as carbon neutral hydrocarbons. Um, okay. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but they're oh, yeah. we, I, you know, I call them synthetic fuels. But synth yes. Yeah, synfuels. Yeah. The, uh, Naval Research Lab has done this work on uh, how nuclear-powered aircraft carriers could produce their own fuel by using the reactors and the Fischer-Trope uh, conversion process to extract carbon and hydrogen from the water and make jet fuel. Um, and it's economically feasible. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, Charles Forsberg at MIT has a whole team uh, and from there and from, I think it's University of Michigan, uh, looking at using 
agricultural waste to, uh, again, use reactors as the source of heat and electricity to uh, extract the carbon and hydrogen, carbon from the, the, the biomass and hydrogen mm-hmm. from water to uh, produce hydrocarbons. So you don't have to electrify buildings. You put in uh, synthetic methane into the pipelines that now carry, you don't need new pipelines like a hydrogen system would need. Mm-hmm. Use existing infrastructure. You, uh, the, you, get, you get the gas and oil industry on your side by using their, their existing refineries and their existing pipelines and their existing delivery systems, retail and wholesale. To, if, uh, if you think about the whole scope of the hydrocarbon industry, the big change that you would have going from what they have now to synthetic fuels is they would stop drilling holes in the earth and instead, you know, produce it at a facility like you're talking about. Right. But everything right. else, the pipelines, the machines, the, right. the chemists, and right. all those other people would still be doing the same job. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just surprising to me that nobody is looking at this seriously. I've been, I'm trying to get some resources together and some people together to, to take a serious look at it and particularly look at the economics of it. I mean, we have to make nuclear a lot cheaper. Um, mm-hmm. I want to note, I just listened to what I think was your most recent podcast with Brett Kugelmass. Uh, mm-hmm. It turns out that I gave a talk at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab in 2020, and he had spoken just before me and talked about how the nuclear industry was, in fact, a, wasn't trying to interested in expanding its power generation capacities, but expanding its radiation protection expenditures. <laughs> and that yeah. nuclear could be so much cheaper and more sent if we were more sensible about radiation protection and what what the radiation levels are and need to be and could be. Uh, and so uh, I was interested that he's now, produ- you know, going overseas. He said he was he was looking overseas for s- support because American the American nuclear industry and its regulatory system was so embedded in this fear excessive fear of radiation, and this insistent that any radiation is harmful. The, the uh, Alara principle that uh, uh, really we have to get get past that and uh, yep. and I, I've, I've, I've been doing some teaching since retiring and my sense is that young people they don't have the fears that people of us people of our age or your age who lived through the, the past with the fears of radiation they don't have that same concern. Uh, but they don't know what it, they don't know what it is. They don't know what nuclear is. And I, I want to go back to a to a, a part of our early conversation when you mentioned that you had worked in the effort to pass the nuclear test ban treaty, yep. and the fear of radioactive fallout. Yep. That's a big part of that. Yep. Yep. You yep. know, I, I've, I've done some historical research, and one of the if you look at the New York Times archive, which I like to use just because it's an accessible archive of, of news yep. for 150 years, the word yep. fallout did not really appear in association with radiation until about 1954, uh-huh. when there was uh-huh. a, a, a 
hydrogen bomb test that yep. exploded and lifted a lot of material and dumped it on another atoll in Iwitak, yep. I think is what the name was. So right. that word didn't really appear until then. But huh. even after that, it didn't appear very much until the issuance of a report by the National Academy of Sciences uh, called The Biological Effects of Atomic Radiation. Uh -huh. And that uh -huh. report in 1956 yep. Yep. helped to get people like you energized yep. about the health impacts of fallout and yep. help get people uh, interested in get and working through this effort to close down atomic weapons testing, the, the yep. Yep. in-air testing. Yep. We, Many we people don't understand yep. just how extensive that testing yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Between I've, the I've... U.S. and Russia, we exploded like 270 bombs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In I, the atmosphere. I, I, absolutely, a huge number, huge number. And yet the, the, the fallout was actually very small and its impact was negligible, but we didn't know that at the time. We thought mm -hmm. this was a serious health issue. Uh, Barry Commoner, who I later worked with, uh, uh, was uh, talking about the effects and others about the effects on children's teeth. Right, uh, the Strat Tooth Fairy Strat Project, yeah. Strontium yeah. ninety. Yep, yeah, yeah, and but now you, we understand so much more about radiation and yet the U, the national academy of sciences still does not i mean i've listened and you i don't know if you've had calabrese on your uh yep yep yeah you know but i've listened to his talks and read his material and it it is shocking what they did and they're still the academy is still to this day uh shamefully uh uh, uh biased uh uh in and unwilling to look at alternatives to the linear no threshold uh, hypothesis. Uh, they put out this recent report on, they were asked by the Congress to develop a research plan for low, on low, uh, you know, low dose radiation. And mm -hmm. the, you, look, you look at their report and there's one citation to a paper by Jerry Cutler who's one of the people who's done research on the, the actual impact of low-dose radiation. And it's, it's just a single paper. They make no mention in their report of looking at the, the data like the, the fact that there are regions in this around the world where the background radiation is 10 and 20 times greater than it is normally, uh, and there's no health effect. There's no health impact. There's clearly not the linear dose relationship clearly doesn't work at low doses. And they refuse to even look at that data. They don't recognize that it exists in, in a report that was, was a year or two in preparation. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's tragic, especially yeah. since we had in the U.S. a pretty well-run program by the Department of Energy to research the low-dose radiation health effects, ran for 10 years, did a tremendous amount of science, actually did genetic studies that looked at the DNA of various living organisms that had been impacted by radiation, looked at them, the 
within four hours after their dose, within uh, eight mm -hmm. hours, and then after 24 hours, and showed mm -hmm. that the vast majority of them for doses below a, a pretty high level, actually, the mm -hmm. repair mechanisms in DNA had had worked out and huh. and corrected any challenges. And hmm. some people claim, well, the yeah, they're repair mechanisms, but we don't think they're perfect. Well, there's <laughs> not perfect, but there's several layers of them. And yeah. when you layer yeah. on a high probability of repair yeah. to another high probability of repair to another high probability yeah. of repair, yeah. you get to a close enough to perfect as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, well, I don't know if you saw what I said in my talk the other day was that the best evidence I know that DNA is protective is that our children look like us and even our grandchildren often look <laughs> like us. And so yeah. this DNA must really have survived those millions of attacks that it took over those years from all kinds of radiation going, particularly gamma rays going through us. Uh, and it survived and produces children that are very healthy and you know, look, look like us often. Yeah. I want to go back to your talk about synthetic hydrocarbons. Yeah. And yeah. I'll point out to you that there is a an excellent report done by a group called Terra Praxis, which is called the Missing Link to Zero, which talks about using nuclear, particularly mass-produced nuclear uh, that can be installed on, say, floating platforms yep. at sea yep. uh, to, to create these plug-in for want of a better term. In other words, uh -huh. hydrocarbons yeah. look just like the hydrocarbons we have today. Sure. Uh, only they're perhaps cleaner because they they're don't cleaner. have some of the contaminants. And though that that work is being done and there are companies that are uh, working in that direction. It's encouraging. It's yeah. not as well discussed as it could be. No, certainly not. I mean, because electrification, I mean, I've tried for two years to get a, an op-ed published that I called, we don't have to electrify everything. And uh, it seems like it's too far, too far off the wall to uh, to be accepted to be accepted part of the dialogue yet. Uh, we always keep talking about hydrogen as if you could just just replace natural gas with hydrogen, which is foolish. Yeah, hydrogen's got its own issues. It's got some wonderful properties and also some troublesome properties that make it hard to handle. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a little bit of experience handling hydrogen because I was a submarine engineer and we carried hydrogen tanks uh -huh. for various reasons. Uh -huh. And some of them were pretty large tanks that we carried in our ballast tanks. And uh -huh. that stuff is, is leaky. It, yeah. it works its way <laughs> through steel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a very tiny molecule and <laughs> it it's, can slip through. In a way yep. that, a, that a big one, bigger one can't. Yep. yep. Hey, Len, we, we've been talking now for a little over an hour, and uh -huh. I, I interrupted you several times, and you said you had things that you wanted to get well, to. So I, I'm going to be I, quiet right now and let you get to the things you want to get to before <laughs> we close. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, well, I got did get to the issue of using using nuclear generated synthetic fuels instead of electrifying everything because that will that's a game game changer because if you don't have to electrify everything, then uh, you know you can have some solar and wind around, but it's not as vast and not as destructive as what, and it, you don't expect as much of it because you're going to have a lot of nuclear 
baseload and some of it dispatchable to uh, make sure that you've got reliability. Um, but the, the real issue we have is how do we get the public the, the, the government seems to be, the federal government at least, seems to be on the right track of uh, providing support for nuclear. It's still small compared to the support it's providing for uh, solar and wind because the Democratic Party base is still oriented towards renewables and doesn't understand, as I said at the beginning, that the 2020s are not the 1970s. We're talking about running a society on a on an energy source that's not reliable, that you can't count on when, the, when you have a dunkel flout, uh, when you have cloudy days with no wind, you need something else, and uh, that something else isn't going to be batteries. You can't run Times Square on a battery. Uh, so uh, we need to get some sense into the nuclear debate, into the whole energy debate, and uh, here in New York, we're doing our best, but it's a tough slog because it's it's uh, polarized. As I said the, earlier, the, we have some Republican who support nuclear, but they aren't very concerned about the environment, so they aren't pushing it very hard. The Democrats are concerned about environmental issues, but they have the wrong solution, and they have the very powerful big green groups, big green organizations, uh, the Sierra Club and. Uh, here we have Riverkeeper, which basically benefited financially from the closure of Indian Point. They got a community benefit fund from it. So we have I'm the shocked. real. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, we have uh, a real, uh, uh, you know, we're, uh, it's a tough sled, but uh, uh, we do get hearings. I mean, we meet, we meet, we've met with state officials and so on. We get a hearing. But we haven't uh, uh, punctured the bubble. Uh, uh, but uh, the, I mean, you know, as, as we get closer to 2030, and it becomes clearer that we're nowhere near, you know, we're still at five percent solar and wind contribution, and getting to 50 percent, which is what the the law says we should do, is clearly out of reach. Uh, but the closer we get to 2030, the clearer it will be. And we just have to keep uh, telling the truth, which is what we've been doing, that solar and wind can't power a modern industrial society. Nuclear can, and it's safe. And that message is we just have to learn how to, we have to give that message and learn various ways to uh, present it that makes clear that uh, uh, people have been misled by uh, a lot of fear and fear mongering and people who benefit from uh, from it right now they're they're raising a big ruckus because uh, the decommissioning at Indian Point is going to include putting some uh, water with tritium in it in the into the Hudson River I mean it's a trivial amount of radioactivity it's like three or four uh, orders of magnitude smaller than anything that could have any biological effect. But all you have to do is say isotope or radioactive, and uh, <laughs> they all come out and, uh, you know, the, the masses come out at meetings and uh, raise a ruckus. And so that's the, the latest fight that we're uh, trying to pro provide some sensible facts and uh, information and perspective on. 
So thank yeah, I you. Wish I, some I, of those, yeah. I wish some of those people would recognize that the biggest beneficiaries by far of not using nuclear are the people who sell oil and gas. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They, uh, they've contributed to the, uh, they partner with solar and wind. Their BP is quite proud of being a partner because they understand that they need a backup. Solar and wind need a backup and they're happy to provide it. Unfortunately, they provide greenhouse gases along with their backup. BP engineers and BP are, are numerate enough to know yeah, that yeah. if if their partner has a maximum capacity factor of say thirty for wind and in your case fifteen for solar, they're not yep. providing a backup. They're providing the majority <laughs> of the power. <laughs> yep. And yep. Yep. you know they they can quietly keep selling their fuel. Um, yep. And yep. And yep. what's the profit of West of uh, the major oil companies last year was over four hundred billion dollars or something yep, like that. Yep, yep. yep. ExxonMobil itself earned about fourteen billion dollars per quarter yep. in profit after taxes. After taxes, sure, sure. Well, no, it's very profitable. I'd like to have them uh, produce syn fuels with nuclear plants that they can run, uh, and can they make if they make profit in a clean way. I'm for it. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think profit yeah. in, a, in a clean way is great. Yeah. And profit, yeah. you know, from moving in the right direction. And yeah. they do have plenty of, of capital that right now <laughs> they're just returning it to their shareholders uh, yeah. instead of investing yeah. it in the energy transition. Yep. So yep. that's that's one of my pushes. We need to get the companies that are doing the job of supplying society with energy today uh, recognizing what they need to do to supply energy to the society in the future and really make investments in that direction. Yep. 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 No, we're, we're, uh, we used to talk about peak oil and we will be talking about it within the coming years because the fracking, you know, uses up its resource and it's not, it's, it's a limited source and it's destroying the climate. So the combination, uh, uh, means those they have to find a new field, and we all—I don't—I want to offer them to it, uh, to them uh, in the form of synfuel production and distribution. Yep, I agree with yep. you. Yep. Hey, Len, um, thank you very much. It's been sure. a joy to talk to you uh, thoroughly, uh, and congratulations on reaching a magical age. Uh, <laughs> yep. I hope yep. to to yep. be there myself in good, a few good. decades but okay good 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 luck and to all, all right. of us okay i've enjoyed it thank you for the opportunity my guest for today's atomic show was len rodberg professor emeritus of urban studies for queen's college and city university of new york he's a co-director of community studies of new york inc and a founding member of nuclear new york this episode of The Atomic Show is brought to you by Nucleation Capital. We're a venture capital fund focused on selecting ventures with extraordinary promise. They're building the advanced nuclear sector and helping expand our clean energy options. We're building a portfolio of ventures on behalf of investors like many of you. We don't just take funds from the large institutions that typically allocate to venture capital. 
we believe that regular investors should have access to the opportunities in modern nuclear for their own portfolios. We allow people to subscribe on a quarterly basis, starting as low as $5,000 per quarter. A four-quarter subscription will get you exposure to between four and six ventures. If you are an accredited investor and would like to learn more about how you can participate, please check out our website at nucleationcapital.com. That's nucleationcapital, all one word, dot com. Our fund and all of the information you need to subscribe is available online. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, Nucleation Insights, and join our pro-nuclear investor network to learn about select syndicated investment opportunities. If you have questions, we're happy to chat. Please spread the word. There's a way, a way, such a better way today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way today. There's a better way. There's a way, such a better way today, today. Now raise your voice, tell the